On this episode of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we talk about First Ontario Centre. There is a report that says over the next number of years, $34 million is going to be needed to fix this place up and keep it going. What should we do with it? We're going to be chatting about a Christmas song that is under fire for being inappropriate. Is Baby It's Cold Outside about sexual assault? Should it be taken off the air because of Me Too? Or are we reading way too much into this? And... If you had the money, would you buy an original Luke Skywalker lightsaber? How about the original Margaret Hamilton Wicked Witch of the West Witch's Hat from The Wizard of Oz? There is a huge auction going on in California. You can bid online if you want of Hollywood memorabilia. It's incredible. The guy who's the head of bringing all the stuff together joins us. Stick around. Great show coming up. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. It is December. I don't know if you noticed that. It is December. And you know what December means? New council was sworn in last night. Business has begun. The city is functioning again. But you know what also that means? There is business to be done. And not always is it really wildly optimistic, really happy news kind of business. A report coming to the General Issues Committee on Friday that the new council will be contemplating. Uh, Among other things in this is First Ontario Centre. It's on the agenda. And what this is, is back in April, council, the old council, asked the city to start looking at First Ontario Centre and find out what's going to be needing to be done over the next little while to keep this place upright and still operating. Well, here's where we are. 2019-2020, sometime in there, we are going to need brine lines and ice plant safety fixings. $7.3 million to do that. 2021, roof and structure repair, another $7 million. bucks. 2022, 23, mechanical, electrical, and safety systems, $15 million will be needed there. 2024, modernizing of a bunch of stuff, another $5 million. This doesn't count the elevators, escalators, some seats, and other stuff that was already discussed uh, probably about a year, six months ago. Uh, that adds up to more than $34 million to be put into First Ontario Centre. Hmm. A lot of money. Let me bring in Lloyd Ferguson, who is uh, back on council, Ward 12, newly sworn in, freshly minted, new, re-back, whatever you want to call it. Councillor, congratulations on getting back in in another four years. Well, thanks, Scott. I look forward to the next four years and representing the people. And I've now added West Flamborough, which is uh, increasing the Ward 12 size by about four times. Well, you've you've got a good mileage plan with council, right? Well, Robert Pasuda used to tell me he used to wear the truck in Flamborough every three years. I, I never had that problem in Ancaster, but we'll see how it goes. When I look at this report that's coming in front of the GIC committee, and there's a bunch of other things on it, but I'm just focusing on this one, it, it seems like a bit of a depressing way to kick off the new council when you start looking at over the next, say, five years. We may have to spend, according to this, thirty-four more than $34 million to keep First Ontario Centre operating properly. Well, let me, let me just put this in perspective for your listeners. First of all, yeah, that's, that's the perfect world, is that we would inject $34 million into this, or $33 million into this facility uh, to keep it up to uh, current standards using a software program that measures this sort of stuff. And, uh, but from a citywide perspective on all infrastructure, our facilities... Um, uh, need $216 million. But city, uh, for all infrastructure, we're in the order of $1.5 billion, and this has been around for decades. And so we've been struggling with this. And, and what Council's done over the last four years to try to address this 
is add a half a percent every year to the tax levy. So 0.5% per year for the last four years. So on that 1.2% tax increase that the people of Ancaster saw, now varies de- depending on assessment or across the city. But in Ancaster for the last three years, it's averaged 1.2% of that. 05 is addressing this infrastructure deficit. And, and that has a multiplier effect as uh, the years go by. Uh, I suspect staff will be recommending the same, and I fully expect council, to, you know, providing that uh, we can keep taxes down below inflation, will be uh, continuing that program to try to address this infrastructure deficit. Our biggest deficit, of course, is roads and sidewalks mm-hmm. and sewers. And uh, if we do LRT, that fixes uh, a good chunk of our problem in the lower city because that entire route, the sanitary sewers and the storm sewers and the water main, have to all be replaced because you can't put that infrastructure underneath the rail tracks. And, and so that's part of the billion dollars that we'll be getting from the province to, uh, to build LRT. But you know, this sounds like a, a lot of money at $30 million. But in the grand scheme of things, it's part of a $240 million facilities problem or a $1.5 billion infrastructure deficit. There's a lot of things that you just said there. I'm going to try and work my way through a bunch of them over the next few minutes that we have here. Um, let's start with this. You, you mentioned about how we have this program, the software program that tries to anticipate and know, because we can't keep our eye on absolutely everything. It makes me think facilities, it almost sounds like facilities are a little bit like yogurt in your fridge. That there's a best before date, but it doesn't necessarily mean it goes bad the minute that best before date arrives on the packaging. But how long can you put these things off before we do run into a problem? Well, it depends what the infrastructure is. Is something that, uh, for example, you talked about escalators uh, a few minutes ago before I come on your show. And the escalators were in disgusting shape at uh, First Ontario Place, and uh, they've been replaced now. And, and so what we're trying to find is innovative solutions to this problem. And uh, one of the things that uh, Sam Ruler brought up, and you, know, you can't do anything on your own, you've got to have at least eight members of council agree with you, was to take a look at privatizing these, the three facilities downtown that are aging, which is the convention center, Hamilton Place and our arena, which is now called First Ontario Place, and and so we're we're going out. Uh, their, their contracts expire in 2019. The two operators, and we're going out to the same two operators to do an extension to see do you want to continue operating the same unit you operated, which is Carmen's at the Convention Center, and uh, the other two are run by um, Spectra, and uh, you know maybe there's synergies in operating both. But our end game is to look at a privatization model where we would either um, provide the land to uh, potential proponents to build a new convention center, uh, renovate Hamilton Place, and do something uh, pretty drastic with the uh, First Ontario Place. And uh, so that the proponent, the consortium that would bid on this, would rebuild these facilities, but they would get uh, access to the air above them, which means... They can go up to 30 floors high on, um, on, on condominiums above these three main facilities. And uh, because uh, right now, um, you know, we approved three new towers in the lower city at our last meeting of the planning committee in September. We have a whole bunch more in the hopper, and maybe this air is quite valuable. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Talking with Councillor Lloyd Ferguson about the First Ontario Centre, the needs $34 million in upgrades. Now, again, as he pointed out a moment ago, just part of a much bigger infrastructure and facility need across the city. But 
Lloyd, when when you hear those numbers and you know the age of this building and you know that there are people out there who have already made it very public that they would be interested in helping to build something new, does this, when you hear these dollars, does this expedite that decision, what you just described about maybe finding a private-public partnership, does this expedite this process so you don't have to throw a bunch of money into something that three, four, five years from now might be torn down? Oh, let me put Lloyd on. There we go. Sorry about that. Try again. Of course it does. We've got to find innovative ways to fix this thing with the downtown boom, particularly the condominium boom. Here's an opportunity for us to take a look at that and, uh, you know, allow the marketplace to uh, rebuild these facilities. Uh, You know, we could either sell the land or keep the land and then rebuild them. And we had to do major uh, renovations to the convention center. The brick was falling off. I believe it was two years ago. Yep. yep. And, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure Hamilton Place is uh, at the point where seats are going to have to be replaced and HVAC and roof and all that are, are reaching the end of life. And there is a software system that our, our facility staff uses called Asset Planner. To, uh, but that's in the perfect world to forecast what you need. But all we're, they're proposing for 2019 in um, First Ontario Centre is um, – $7.3 million, and I shouldn't say all, that's a lot of money, but the big thing is the end-of-life brine piping system, including the refrigeration systems, and a 1.25 kilowatt natural gas generator so they can continue to run the facility in the um, during power failures. And then, you know, they're looking to, when they do that, to do it to OHL size rink rather than a... Um, um, Olympic size. So Olympic size, uh, you probably know this better than I do as a sports reporter, but Olympic size is 100 feet by 200 feet, where an OHL size is 80 feet by 85 feet by 200 feet. Mm-hmm. And we've only used the Olympic size twice. I, I, I remember that, yes. That was built, it was built with the idea that it could, the boards can actually expand outwards. Yeah, they can. But it's never been used. Well, twice. Well, it's been used twice. Yeah. And, and so we'd probably, uh, the staff are suggesting the right thing to do is, is replace the piping for the refrigeration um, only in an um, uh, OHL size, because that seems to be the main use for the Bulldogs. Um, I think it's been made pretty clear to us that uh, nowadays it doesn't meet NHL standards, so uh, I think that ship sailed, but if it hasn't, if it comes back to port, it's probably uh, looking at a whole new uh, Mm -hmm. arena for that Mm -hmm. facility. Well, and and again, the the trouble, the complication of this is the rink is now at an age when if you pour all this money into it and then somehow a decision is made that we've got this private builder, this private partner that wants to go in with us in three years from now, we've poured $30 million into an arena, we're going to tear it down. That's just money flushed down the toilet. We're not going to spend $30 million before then. This is a 10-year program. And, and so that won't happen before. I'm not even sure we'll agree to replace the brine pipes. Maybe we just go in and repair them and keep going. Do we really need a big generator? That'll be the debate on Friday when we have this discussion. And the whole capital program is coming to council on Friday. I haven't even received it yet. So there's mm. going to be ongoing debate on this because we are just sworn in yesterday. So now they start releasing all these documents <laughs> to the new council. And I got an email today. It's sitting on my desk at City Hall. And I'm in first thing in the morning to pick it up and prepare for Friday's debate. But they've added the three, two of them. One is the uh, Valley Park Community Center where they're doing a library. So they want to put another $2.4 million into that. Another is there's a a big fresh air supply fan that needs to replace in farmer's market for $550,000. So this is something we face on a daily basis almost, and we have to make the decision based on what staff tell us 
do we do this now or do we wait and uh, fix more roads or fix more sewers? I mean, we, we're spending a lot of money, about $500 million right now, on the expansion of the Woodward Avenue sewage treatment plant. This is ongoing in large old cities that this infrastructure has to be replaced. And, you know, we, we, we saw a water main break just a few weeks ago that was built in the 1800s. And, and so uh, we also have some underground infrastructure that needs some uh, some attention. Typically what we do with underground facilities, though, we replace them at the same time that we do the road work so that mm. you're not digging the road up twice. You must feel like a juggler at times. Just don't let the balls hit the ground. Just keep everything in the air. Well, th- that's our job, and, and is to make those kind of decisions of what's the right thing to do. You know, you got a, a water main built in 1880. You should probably take a close look at that, particularly when it's a major feeder coming out of our water treatment plant. But don't be too alarmed by this $30 million. That's in the perfect world. And you used the yogurt example earlier. I just threw out some this morning that was 30 days past. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a wise decision, I would say. <laughs> One or two days. You know, it would be really bad to miss the first days of council because of food poisoning because of old yogurt. I'm just saying. Well, it might be. <laughs> Councillor Lloyd Ferguson, really appreciate the time as always. And uh, good luck again and congratulations on the next term. Thanks, Scott, for having me on. That is, uh, here's the question that is going to be raised, I guarantee you, at some point. People bristle at the idea of spending money for a new arena, but people will also bristle at throwing money at an arena that is way past its date. So what do we do? And some people will say, well, you know what? It's a luxury. It's not a need. We don't even need an arena. I'd like to know your thoughts on that one. What would happen if a counselor stood up and said, we don't need a new arena. Let's just let it go, tear it down, and we'll deal with it without you're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Baby, it's bad out there. Say what's in this drink. No caps to be had out there. <laughs> I wish I knew how. Your eyes are like starlight To now. break this spell. You know this song, right? Baby, it's cold outside. This is Adina Menzel, who was the woman who sang the Frozen song. You know that one? And Michael Bublé doing a duet on this one. Uh, you've heard this song on all over the place. Everybody's done this song. Rod Stewart and Dolly Parton. The original was won an Academy Award way, way, way back at the dawn of time, 1944, I think. If anyone is born in 1944 and I've just told you that you were <laughs> born at the dawn of time, well, you get my drift. But uh, the original, 1944, you know who was the guy on the Academy Award winning version? Ricardo Montalban. With the rich Corinthian leather. Um, yes, Baby It's Cold Outside. It's a duet. It's a song about a guy and a girl, man and a woman, who are inside on a snowy day, and he clearly wants her to stick around and do who knows what, and she is demurring, saying, I really shouldn't, but if you follow the lyrics, if you read all the lyrics not really running for the door either. It's a complicated song. Well, the reason we bring this up is because a number of Canadian radio stations, many in fact, apparently all of Rogers Media and all of Bell Media and CBC have said, no, no, we're not playing that this year. This is off our list. We've we've essentially pulled it out of our rotations. Not because the song doesn't have fans. The reason that this is being taken out is because there are people who are arguing that in the Me Too era, in the era of being more cognizant and more aware of sexual assault, that this song is kind of sexually assaulty. It's kind of a man taking advantage of a woman. 
And much of what this centers on, it seems, is the one line. We just finished with it before I cut it off there. The neighbors might think, she says, and he says, baby, it's bad out there. And she says, say, what's in this drink? And some people say, well, he obviously he's put a roofie in there. He's spiked the drink. He's put a date rape drug or something in there. Well, what do you think? Is this song in 2018, close to 2019 with everything going on, is this song inappropriate? Should this not be heard because it promotes, encourages, validates, turns a blind eye to sexual assault? Or, or is this a song about two people kind of doing a little flirty back and forth that really is kind of innocent and that and the people who would say, no, we got to get rid of this thing because it's inappropriate are completely missing the point and way overstating what the problems are or if there are problems with this. I want to hear from you. 905-645-3221 or star 9900. Those are the numbers to call. You can also email me, Radley, R-A-D-L-E-Y, Radley at 900CHML.com. Does this song trouble you? If it does, you are more than welcome to call. I will hear you out for sure. Or are you looking at this saying, come on, come on. It is a reasonably innocent Christmas song about two people on a snowy night who are flirting and seducing each other. And it's kind of romantic, but there's nothing offensive or troubling or anything like that in this song. Where do you stand on this one? 905-645-3221 or star 9900. Because you are not going to hear this song much this year if you're relying on radio stations. Because most stations across this country have said, no, it's, it's, it's out of our rotation. It's a troublesome song now. So you're not going to play it. John is on the line today. John, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm doing great, thank you. Where do you stand on this? Do you hear this song and say to yourself, yeah, you know, that's kind of uncomfortable because it sounds like he spiked her drink with something. Or do you say, come on, this is innocent love, innocent seduction, whatever you want to call it. Let's just live and let live. I think it's left to the imagination of the listener of this song. I can tell you, I've had people serve me drinks where I've looked and said, what's in this? It's fantastic. Right, so it could be a, hey, this is a great drink you just gave me. It could be, and, and the whole nature of the song could be one friend suffering from depression doesn't want to be left alone for that night. Please, stick around. You're comforting me more. Like, there's so many... It's it's so open for interpretation. I think it's somewhat ridiculous that, that it's not going to be played just because of the Me Too movement. John, if it's open for interpretation, as you say, and I think you're right, because I hadn't even considered what you just said. I When I heard the, hey, what's in this drink, I thought you just meant it was a really stiff drink. And it was like, wow, that's, that's a hard... But if it's open to interpretation, as you say, and one of the interpretations could be something a little bit offensive or concerning, should that be enough to take it off the radio? I don't think so. I don't think it's clear enough to, to, to indicate that it's offensive. I think if you were to pull the greater population, I think people would think it's just a Christmas song. John, I really appreciate your call. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, guys. Have a great night. You guys do wonderful work. Thank you very much. Uh, Let me read you some of the lines. I'm going to come back with a couple other calls in just a second, but let me go through the second verse, because this is the one that oftentimes gets people cranky, gets people upset. The neighbors might think, baby, it's bad out there. 
Say, what's in this drink? No cabs to be had out there. I wish I knew how. Your eyes are like starlight now. To break this spell, I'll take your hat. Your hair looks swell. I ought to say no, no, no. This is another part where they say, well, she's, look, she's saying no. I ought to say no, no, no. Mind if I move in closer? At least I'm going to say that I tried. What's the sense hurting my pride? I really can't stay. Baby, don't hold out. Baby, it's cold outside. Think about those lyrics. We're going to take a quick break and come back. Is this a song that offends you? Is this a song we should be worried about? Is this a song that sends a message that it's okay for a guy to take advantage of a woman to press her to do whatever? Or is this a song simply about flirting back and forth that is lighthearted and nowhere near offensive? You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. For the times they are changing. They are a changing. Thank you, Bob. The times are a changing. And one of the things, one of the ways we can see the times changing for better or for worse, your call for better or for worse is the fact that a whole bunch of radio stations are banning or maybe not even banning, refusing to play, deciding not to play, pulling from their playlist the song Baby It's Cold Outside because some of the lyrics, some say, are all about a guy pressuring, heavily pressuring a woman to stay and do things with him, and she's showing reluctance. Well, as John said earlier, said a moment ago on the line, there are interpretations of this. Where do you stand on the interpretation? Is this a song that causes you concern that when you hear this, you go, ooh, that that, that doesn't sound good now? Or do you say, no, it's a innocent, flirty interaction between a man and a woman who clearly like each other and he's trying to convince her to stay and she wants to stay but knows, especially back in 1944 when this is written, that she really by social norms, by social propriety can't stay. Where do you take this one? Let me go to Karen. Karen, how are you tonight? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Where do you stand on this one? You you would seem to be the target audience for the concern. You are a woman. Where do you stand on this? I think it's a great song. I love the song. And I think it's just about two people getting together and enjoying each other. And for those people who think it's a Me Too movement, I think they're wrong. It has nothing to do with that at all. And I think they've read way too much into the song. Well, that's see, that's one of my thoughts on this, Karen, that we are getting to a point. And look, I'm not sweeping across the board to say every single thing we're reading too deeply. And there are things where I believe that they are inappropriate, and so we can make decisions. This one, though, I'm with you. I, I, it seems that we've got something that is relatively innocent here that Absolutely. we are trying to turn into something uncomfortable and kind of dirty. Yep, Absolutely. I mean, I hope that they play the song. I, I love that song. I think it's a great song. There's nothing wrong with it. There's there's nothing absurd about it or, I don't know, Kar- no Me Too movement going on there, I don't, as far as I can see anyway. Karen, I appreciate the call. Thank you so much. Thank you. Here's, I mean, we talked on the show a few days ago. I think last Friday it was we talked about it. We talked about the fact that Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer now, there are people pointing out saying it is racist and homophobic. The 52, 53-year-old animated claymation show because Santa in the show is a jerk and he picks on Rudolph and Rudolph is ostracized for being different. And I'm like, well, it's a 52-year-old animated show. I'm really not thinking when I watch this that I'm watching 
a an episode an episode of someone being tarred because they're gay. For, I mean, who in that show is gay? Is there somebody? I I don't know. But certainly, I'm looking at this going, we sometimes, and again, not all the times, sometimes I'm looking at this going, we are trying too hard to be offended. We are trying too hard to be offended. Charlie Brown's Thanksgiving, there were complaints because the one black character, Franklin, was sitting on the one side of the table and by himself, and so this was racist of Charles M. Schultz, apparently, when this was put together. Well, Really? seems to me we're digging down into the mines to try and find things to be upset by. And this song is right there as well. Does this mean that we can't watch the movie Elf anymore? Because remember, Will Ferrell sings this in the movie Elf with um, whatever her name is, who's the, his love interest in, the, in Elf. Does that mean we shouldn't watch this anymore? If you find this song offensive, can you not watch Elf? Here, here's really where you start to, well, for me, where some of the problems come. I am not, as I said a moment ago, unilaterally sweeping all complaints of offensive stuff off the table. I am not saying there are no offensive things out there, and I'm not saying that we should continue to watch or listen to every single thing. But I guarantee you, that if you dig down in every single Christmas show that has ever been on TV, you could probably find something that by today's standards might be offensive. I mean, we could never watch National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation again if we were to truly rule out anything that was offensive. There is a kidnapping in there, among other things. Can you imagine? How can we watch? That's a crime. And we're laughing about it. There's what people might determine to be police brutality in that movie. There's all kinds of stuff. Like, surely at some point we have to look at this and say, in 1944, when this song was written, what do you think the likelihood was that the author of this song, the guy who put this together, a guy by the name of Frank Loser, what do you think the chances are that he was talking about roofing his girlfriend? and putting date rape drugs in her drink in 1944. And if the interpretation, if the song written in 1944 wasn't about that, why have we suddenly interpreted that he is now doing that? I think Frank, I don't even know if Frank is alive. i got to look this one up. I don't even know if Frank is still alive. But if Frank, no, he passed away back in 1969. Oh, he's long, long dead. If Frank was alive today, I'm sure he would be horrified at the thought that somebody thinks that he was talking about inserting a date rape drug into his girlfriend's drink and that's what this song was about. Come on. But that's where we are. Apparently now this is a song about rape. I'm sorry, I don't hear it. And maybe that's just me being a guy. Maybe I'm not catching on to it. Maybe I'm not in tune enough with the Me Too movement. I'm not hearing a song about rape with this one. I'm sorry. I'm just not. So if you're one of those people working at those other radio stations, good for you, I guess, for finding it. You're digging way too deep for me. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to bring on my guest. He is His name is Brian Chains. He's the head of acquisitions at Profiles in History, which is a company that does these auctions with Hollywood, with other entertainment memorabilia. Brian, thanks for doing this today. 
Hey, my pleasure. I, I, by the way, I know the answer to your question. Well, I, I won't blow it for people. I was just <laughs> going to say, if there was anybody who would know, you could probably not just name three. You could name all five, and you could probably name all the pugs that Rocky fought in the beginning of Rocky One that weren't even named, too, knowing you. So no, I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be able to go to that minutiae, that detail. But but I, I'm I'm aware of his opponents for sure. Uh, there, we were talking just before you came on that you are the head of acquisitions at this company called Profiles in History, and you've got a massive auction. I've been looking through this, and I must tell you, I, I am a fan of movies, of TV shows, of Hollywood stuff, of entertainment, and I have spent way too much time looking through the m- magazine <laughs> of what you have for sale. And if I was independently wealthy, and sadly I am not we- wealthy enough to bid on some of these things, I got to tell you, I would blow all of it, I think. I'd be in trouble because I would spend so much time and so much money on some of these things. It's an incredible auction you've got coming up. Oh, well, thank you. It's definitely a rabbit hole. You can start looking, oh, I remember that. I yeah. remember that movie. I remember that TV show. Yeah. Well, we, I want to get to some of the big items in just a moment. But before we do that, you are the head of acquisitions. How do you find some of these things? How, and I'll give you one example. I'll give people an example just so they know where we're going because one of the mm-hmm. main the big ticket, and not necessarily money-wise, although it will be, but the big, n- notorious, and that's the wrong word, famous things, Luke Skywalker's original lightsaber is going to be up for auction. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of thing. How do you find things like this? Well, that's an interesting case because, well, what happens is you it's kind of like a snowball effect, an upward spiral. Last summer, we sold an original um, screen-used R2-D2 droid from the original trilogy from 77 to 83, you know, from, from A New Hope to Return of the Jedi. And that brought $2.76 million. Wow. shattered all world records for Star Wars. So when you get stuff like that in the, printed in the paper all over the place, all over the media, then people who worked on productions, and in this case with the, with the lightsaber, Set decorator, Academy Award-winning set, set decorator Roger Christian, he contacted me and said, "I have the original or one of the original um, uh, five lightsabers from A New Hope, the first movie in 1977." I said, "Well, bring it on." So <laughs> that's basically it. You know, it's about a year and a half later, and uh, it's now going on the block, and we're selling it for him. So it's basically, you know, you know, uh, the, the great press and uh, high prices flushes this stuff out of the woodwork a lot of times. How though? And you're an expert at this, but nonetheless, how can you establish that these things are legit? When someone comes forward and says, I've got whatever, how do you figure out that this is truly the thing and not a, an imitation or something they've well, made that's or whatever? a very good question. You know, there are certain things that, uh, that, you, that you have to really pay special attention to, especially the real, something that's super obscure. Like if you're talking about a wall sconce that was in the back of uh, mm. King of Kings or something in some chamber somewhere, no one's going to bother to think <laughs> something like that. But of course, it has to look, you know, walk like a duck and and uh, and and, uh, and quack like a duck. It's got a you know screen match because a lot of this stuff is from old old um, uh, prop and set decoration warehouses. But something like Roger's lightsaber. I mean, the guy was the is is was boots on the ground. He's the one that created all of the original ones from the from the film. And so you have impeccable provenance. Provenance is the key where it came from. And, uh, and who is standing behind it. Um, now, if it comes in a vacuum out of left field, you, you have to do a heck of a lot of research. And, and where we are located, 
Uh, we're in Calabasas, which is a suburb of Los Angeles, and so we have many people who do who still work in the business, and of course historians and other people who did work in you know, these different disciplines, be it set decoration or prop building, or you know some of the original art dec- um, art directors and and uh, so forth. So you know we end up finding out is this really what it looks to be uh now you know we're pretty darn good doing it in-house but sometimes we have to defer to people who are you know absolute top experts and then we you know have have them uh, take a look and uh and and fully vet it you know we have to listen to their opinions as well the amazing thing and you talk about the provenance i mean the there are some where again you you point to the fact that this person made it or owned it whatever that makes a lot of sense mm-hmm. but not mm-hmm. all of these things can be coming from those people they these things Absolutely have probably not. blown in the wind for a long time do you yeah. ever have one come forward and go how in the world did you come across upon that well yeah you know it's it's a interesting story you know years ago you know, we had uh, uh, the original captain's chair from the set of the original Star Trek series mm. back in the 60s, you know, Shatner and Spock. And, you know, and, and this guy had the captain's chair. The only, you know, they only made one, you know, unlike other things that they make more than multiples, you know, just in case for lost damage, theft, etc. But this guy, when they were breaking down the set when the the show was canceled, you know, he, he basically was, you know, responsible for removing the things from the old Paramount slash Desilu lot, and uh, it, had, it was in his TV room ever since. So, you know, that's basically, you know, so sometimes it happens to be people who were at the right place at the right time, and uh, they happen to, to be working at the studio or the production, um, and, uh, and then other times it, they, their original source was someone like them, but then maybe it's changed hands a time or two since then. So you have to be able to backtrace the history you know, of it. And then, of course, look at it from a fundamental standpoint. Is it constructed of the proper materials, mm-hmm. um, et cetera, et cetera. Sounds like the Merv Griffin set in Kramer's apartment. Exactly. The funny thing about this, though, is that once upon a time, nowadays, if I'm working on a show and it's a popular show, I think 99.9% of people, anyone with any active brain cells is going to say, you know what, someday this thing could be worth something. If I was working on Seinfeld, throw out a Seinfeld reference, if I'm working on Seinfeld, I'm probably smart enough to know that most of the items in Seinfeld's apartment, somebody might be interested in. But back in the 30s or 40s or 50s or 60s, did people have that same sense that I should hold on to this because someday it's going to be worth something? They didn't, and that's the thing. Nowadays, it's a different beast entirely because now, with the internet and the, the access to information, I mean, now production companies are, are actually selling things, you know, officially. Like when we, when uh, the the show Glee wrapped, you know, for 20th Century Fox, we sold the material. For you know, the Lionsgate, we sold all the material from the Hunger Games films. Um, lost. We did it for ABC Disney. So it's now they're just kind of going outward and they, they're keeping it all in-house and they have an official sale and blow it out that way. But back in the old days, this stuff didn't really have monetary value. It was more of a cottage, hey, I'll trade you this for that. And it really wasn't monetized until 1970, MGM, they liquidated their their back lot. And, uh, and, and, you know, that's when the first pair of known ruby slippers were sold for $15,000, and people thought that that was an insane <laughs> amount of money 
they, and now it would be worth at least a couple million dollars. Those, those, that pair happens to be, they were donated to the Smithsonian um, back in the or mid-70s, a few years after the sale. But uh, the point is, that's when that really, that sale ushered this collectible into the mainstream. But still, from the 70s till mid-80s, it was, you know, people trading, people having them in collections, that they didn't really have a value until auction houses started sprouting, sprouting up, and we've since grown to be the largest auction house devoted to this collectible. And, uh, and so then now you can really say, hey, how much is a Batman suit from the 1989 Batman worth? And I said, because as you know, there are several. We've sold a couple, and you know they can sell anywhere from you know, depending on condition, et cetera, from you know, like sixty thousand to one hundred and twenty thousand. It you sounds know, like your market for this stuff is you got to have some deep pockets to be playing in this game, though. Now, you know, I you know, I I always tell people have an open mind because we literally have some things in there in our sales that are that opening bid is a hundred bucks. So you know, certain things it may be a lobby card, it may even be a, a poster that that, that uh, or may, maybe just something that's nondescript, some paperwork that we've seen on screen uh, in uh, in the movie The Rock. You know, or something along those lines. For instance, I have a string of prop string of pearls. If you remember that movie at all, you know, which was that stuff that was very explosive, or it was either explosive or had some kind of virus involved. I forget. But anyway, it was a key plot driving uh, uh, prop. And you know, we have it in at three to five hundred dollars. You know, the little hand blown glass things that are painted green, and uh, you know, it was just a prop. Uh, that's recognizable to the people who've seen the film. And so you can, for a few hundred bucks, you can get something pretty cool that's recognizable. So it's not only a wealthy man's game. The There must be, though, a movie or two or three or four, five, a number of them right at the very top of the list that you know that anything substantial you get from that particular movie is going to move and is going to be exciting. Move and exciting. In, in, in two of those, just right off the bat, are Wizard of Oz and Star Wars. I mean, if you have, I mean, I have a couple of sections of the Death Star, the, the set, that, you know, that they used, and you know, when they were attacking the Death Star, and the uh, the models were strafing the uh, the surface of the Death Star. You know, I have them in at like two to three thousand. They're eh, probably going to sell between five to seven thousand because you know we we tend to skew the estimates to the low end just to attract bids you can't start where you think they may end up but uh, you know so you're going to get at least a few grand for 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 something that's recognizable from star wars wizard of oz you know we've got a winky spear for about twenty thousand um twenty to thirty but you know again wizard of oz and and, and star wars are both probably the, the the upper crust of um of all of all films you know do you have one item that you have always thought was the holy grail that you just dream of getting your hands on to be able to either sell or just even to sit in the office and hold it for a few minutes and be part of it? Man, you know, the thing is, I've my favorite thing that we've probably ever held and handled was... Uh, you know the uh, you know the 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 captain's chair because I was an original Star Trek series you know fanatic. Um, there is a hero phaser uh, that was from Star Trek that would. My guess is it would sell for at least half a million to a million dollars in today's market. Um, wow. they, there's only one known to exist now. And uh, the hero, when I say that, means it's a really well-made, with uh, made out of aluminum and fiberglass that really 
finely detailed for close-up shots, not something that was kind of mid-grade for medium shots or stunt, which many times is plastic or rubber, so the actor can jump on it and fall on it, and it, will, and it won't hurt him or the, the, the item. But uh, that's probably would be, for me, the holy grail um, in the field. But maybe the best thing that we've ever had is in this sale, too, and it's, it happens to be a, the original... Noel Langley manuscript, handwritten manuscript, over 80 pages of The Wizard of Oz and with a production archive and so forth. And we, that one's expensive. It starts at 800 grand. But mm. I mean, it, it, it's truly, that's history in the making. It's the bedrock, the foundation of, of the film, you know? Well, let's go through a few more of these things that are on the list. And I've got a long list. I'm not going to have time to get through them all because, again, I spent sure. way more time than I should have today looking <laughs> through this book and making a list. And then when I was done, I went, well, that's about 200 things that I want to talk about. And so unless we're going to take as long as the auction itself, we better run through these. Uh, you've also, in addition to the Wizard of Oz script, you've got a Gone with the Wind script that's up for grabs here. Yes. It was the original script girl, and I should say today, script person, uh, but it has the actual hand-tooled, kind of looks like a Western saddle, Gone with the Wind folder, and um, it has annotations and so forth, um, and it was on the set, and that, that's a really special piece. And, uh, uh, you know, I expect that to sell maybe twelve, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000, something around there. One of my favorite things, and I think this would be one of many people's favorites that's up for auction if they look through this book, you actually have Margaret Hamilton's Wicked Witch of the West hat from Wizard of Oz. Yes. Yes. And, and uh, that is a really special, you know, we, there are a handful of those known to exist. Again, you know, they have multiples for different, for different reasons. The, we, the most we've ever sold one for, I think, was around, I just go offhand, around 240 grand, I think, for a hat. Yeah, that <laughs> but, is amazing. Uh, this one is this one is a bit different in the sense that um, it actually has a small elastic cord that you couldn't really see on the, during the filming, but it would kept the hat on during the flying sequences, and I use that in quotes, when she was on the broom. Um, and uh, it, so yeah, she needed to secure it. But anyway, that one actually came from the original uh, uh, you know, MGM 1970 auction, the, the person who held the auction, David Weiss, and that's where that one came from, talking about provenance. If Wizard of Oz is high-end movie history, I think we go down to the low-end, well, you know what I mean, of TV, one of Bob Denver's Gilligan red shirts from Gilligan's Island. Yes. Which is amazing, because really I don't even think of Gilligan's thing. Island as, as something you would have memorabilia from, but obviously, as soon as I saw it, I went, well, of course there would be. Sure. Yeah, I mean, all of these things had relics that, you know, that went back into the prop house of the, of the you know, the studios and, uh, you know, or wardrobe facilities and, uh, you know, were, were tucked away, you know, or, you know, collectors able to get a hold of it decades ago. But, um, you know, that signature shirt... Actually, Bob Denver, we had the years ago, this is the second time we've, we've, we've um, handled it. Bob Denver himself actually authenticated it, and, um, and, uh, and you know, he, he, was, he didn't have anything to do with it in the sense that, uh, that, that he was not the owner, but he did authenticate it, and uh, we did get, it, um, get that, his seal of approval on it. Um, but uh, the, that one, he didn't even have one himself, but it is mm. a signature piece you immediately look at, and you can tell that the... the 100%. The, uh, 
Yeah. 100%. Exactly. Perhaps the strangest, now, again, I haven't seen everything here, but as far as recognizable but really weird, like something you would never think would be in an auction because it's just too bizarre, the actual curtains from The Tonight Show that Johnny Carson would walk through to come onto the stage. Uh, who, who sells curtains in an auction? But they are, and as soon as you see them, you go, yeah, of course. They look just like I remember from the late 70s, early 80s. Right, those rainbow curtains. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and you know, the thing is about those, and I don't know if you read the description, but uh, you know, those actually did come from the NBC drapery department um, um, manager, you know, Randy Pitkin. So, you know, again, that where another little bit of tidbit of information is the bottom. So they make sure that they hang properly. They have an actual chain sewn in the bottom hem at the bottom, you know, so they would, they're still flexible, so they, but they have nice weight so they, they, can, uh, they can hang properly. I think the queen does the same thing with her skirts, but that's totally off topic. <laughs> uh, exactly. A few other things. Uh, Tony Soprano's outfit from the very final scene of Sopranos. If you're a Sopranos fan, everyone knows how that ends. I won't blow it in case anyone wants to watch it on some streaming service right now. But yeah, that, that, uh, that one stands out. A few more things. Rocky's boots from Rocky II. We were just doing a quiz question about Rocky. Darth Vader's helmet. Now, I don't think this, this was not one in the movie, but it's a perfect replica, correct? the Darth Vader helmet? Well, exactly. That particular Vader helmet was made by Industrial Light and Magic, ILM, which was just, you know, the, the effects house at Lucasfilm. And uh, it was made for promotion. So at high-end markets, be it Chicago, New York, London, you know, if they had a, like a display cabinet during the premiere of Return of the Jedi. So it was from the time period of the film, made by the same studio, but from the original molds and created by the original artisans, but it was, that one was not screen used, and that's why that's forty to 60000 as opposed to, you know, two to 300000 A couple more really quickly. This one, and, and mm-hmm. I'm guessing... If I was you, you have to have tried this, I'm thinking, in your office. Christopher Plummer's whistle from Sound of Music, when he wanted to whistle to bring the kids in, tell me you at least blew that and see, saw if it still worked. <laughs> Believe it or not, I didn't. I didn't, you know. Uh, maybe see if all your staff marched in. On something so old and tarnished like that, and God knows who all, except besides Plummer, you know, put his lips on it. But True enough. Know, I did not, but... Uh, it, that is a cool piece because it, everyone remembers that. And the wizard, I mean, sorry, uh, uh, The Sound of Music is such a classic film. Spock's prosthetic ears from the original Star Trek series, which actually looks like someone yep. just had some horrible accident when I looked at the picture because they were just lopped off. It was like Mike Tyson and Evander Holyfield. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the actual prosthetic ears, the top point, just the pointy part, by the way. Exactly. Now, those, in, in, he put a new set on every episode, so, you know, but again, they just would most of the time get thrown away. And uh, that, the provenance, interesting of those, they, they were given away in, the, in this 1970s, early 70s, to buy a comic book store that was doing a charity event, and a person who actually won them, uh, you know, ended up, you know, getting them. But we've handled them before, and indeed, you know, you can see that it is from the proper Freddie Phillips mold who made it. Because each one, if you go to Star Trek V, they had a different kind of um, uh, different mold for the ears, believe it or not. I know it's a weird specialty, 
<laughs> I, be, I, I have no doubt among Trekkies that that would be one of the coolest things ever to get their hands on. Really quickly, the front door to the Bates Motel from Psycho, Ripley's full costume from Aliens, uh, Marty McFly's hoverboard from Back to the Future 2, and this one, which I would put at the top of my list, which probably says more about me being weird than anything else, the Gold Angels with the wings touching that was on the top of the Ark of the Covenant in Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is just a weird little thing, but really cool. It is cool, and they're beautiful, too. You know, they're, you know and uh, they really would be a good display piece uh, for anybody because, again, they're instantly recognizable. Usually, when you have an iconic film like any, uh, any of the in- original Raiders, Indiana Jones movies, or Star Wars, any of these things, you, you know, they're, they're very, very uh, uh, collectible. And something that's, that defies explanation, you know, those are the archangels, then, you know, you can see the price go up. Yeah. Well, listen, uh, there are, I don't know how many, I haven't counted, hundreds, thousands of items. How long will this auction take to go through? Well, you know, we typically, we start at lot one every day. This one's in four sessions, by the way. Um, We start at 11 a.m. Pacific Standard. And we sell, it depends, um, every day in each session is going to be a bit different, uh, depending on uh, a bid activity. But we go from anywhere from 60 to 100 lots an hour. Mm. And so will yeah, you do we you have ex- over 2100 lots so wow do you expect they'll all sell like what percentage would actually sell in a typical auction you you know in a typical auction you'd expect maybe an 80 85% sale right because everything in the sale does have a reserve which in our sales the reserve is the low end of the stated pre-sale estimate as listed either online or on in the catalog do you, you have something says you know, sixty to, or I'm sorry, three to five hundred dollars. The reserves three hundred dollars. Do you have? And I got to let you go. But do, is there anywhere when, if people are ever down in California or people down there, is there some place to see all this stuff, or is it only on the day of the auction? You guys should have a museum for all this, a rotating museum. Well, it is. It's almost like a traveling museum. But no, people can come and visit by appointment only, and it's you know, a, a basically two and a half, three weeks prior to the sale, people do make appointments to preview the specific lots they want to see. But we have a lot of stuff that's just here in the cases, and it, it is. It's like an amazing free museum. So, yes, people are welcome to come in, you know, once they, they make, a, make an appointment. Uh, Brian Chanis, who is the head of acquisitions at Profiles in History. What is the website, by the way, if somebody wants to go and look up this stuff? Because it is well worth the time. Oh, thank you. It is uh, profilesinhistory.com, all one word. And they can find the book there. Look for on the right-hand side, there's links, and you can look for the PDF or whatever. And, and it is well worth some time. Brian, really, listen, really appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks so much. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for spending the time. It was great chatting with you. That is, uh, again, Profiles in History. Go look it up because it, if you like pop culture at all, there is stuff in here that will blow you away. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.